Welcome to FMC Radio Europe. I'm Josh Avery, and you're listening to FMC Radio. To borrow a phrase from the late Rod Serling in his show The Twilight Zone from the 1960s, today's episode on FMC Radio is somewhat unique and calls for a different kind of introduction. You see, a friend of mine once told me that I should see myself as a character in a larger story that God is writing through my life, and that I could make any decision in my life by simply considering if it would make a good story later. Even though he would often challenge people to ride through an automatic car wash on the hood of his car, he ultimately wasn't talking about bungee jumping off a cliff or completing some other crazy feat. He was talking about doing what matters on a larger level, and I've been attempting to do that ever since. So today, the first installment of an ongoing project called Do It For The Story. first time I saw them on TV, I thought we should nuke their entire compound. I'm not the kind of guy who wishes harm on others. I never find myself really flaring up with anger, and in fact, many people tell me that they've never seen me angry about anything. But when I first saw the video of the Westboro Baptist Church on an episode of 2020, I seriously felt like they needed to be wiped off the map. Now, if you've never heard of them, you probably think I'm crazy. Maybe you're rewinding the last few seconds of this episode right now wondering, did a current Free Methodist pastor actually really just confess to wanting to bomb a church? Now, I'll admit that sounds crazy. And to be fair, I didn't actually want to send nuclear bombs to destroy the Westboro Baptist Church of Topeka, Kansas. It just sounded good in theory when I thought about it. Now, I should probably explain myself before somebody calls my conference superintendents. As I mentioned, Westboro is a group of roughly 70 people who call themselves a church located in Topeka, Kansas. On Sunday, they hold a service in a small building where they sing hymns, listen to a sermon, and gather together as a congregation. A man named Fred Phelps leads the small group, most of whom are family members of Mr. Phelps himself. Sons, daughters, grandchildren, in-laws, you know, you get the picture. That scenario may sound familiar and acceptable to you, but I've left out key differences between the Westboro service and the one that you're used to attending every week. Westboro Baptist Church is not like any church you've ever been to in your entire life, I guarantee it. The sermon every single Sunday is about God's hatred for all people except Westboro itself. Signs at the front of the sanctuary state shocking claims like, it's too late to pray, or thank God for September 11th, and an upside down American flag flies on a pole outside the front door. Now if those things don't have you troubled, perhaps you will be when you learn what the church members do with their free time. For the last 26 years, 365 days a year, Westboro has been conducting protests throughout all 50 states in the most offensive locations imaginable, holding signs such as, thank God for Hurricane Katrina shortly after the devastation hit. God sent the shooter after mass shooting tragedies. And even, your dead soldier is in hell outside of American soldiers' actual funerals. Change his 
That's them singing their own version of Michael Jackson's song, We Are the World, which they call God Hates the World. The first time I heard it being sung on that 2020 episode, the song ended like this. It's too late to change your mind. You live in not. Do not grow up for eternity. Yeah, that's a little kid singing those hateful words. Obviously too young to understand what she's actually saying, yet seeking the approval of her parents. They were teaching a small child the language of hate. Are you starting to understand why I said I felt like it would be better for them to be wiped off the map than continue their hateful rhetoric? Wouldn't it make sense to somehow silence the negative impact that they're having on true Christianity? Doesn't it seem that it would be a good idea for all those parents to disappear, leaving the children to be raised by those who would teach them that without love, any song is a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal? And yet, even in my anger and thoughts of nuclear bombs, I realized something else when I heard the little girls singing about all of us facing a fiery day. I realized that this child was innocent, and that made me wonder. Was there any hope for the people in the Westboro Baptist Church, or were they somehow beyond redemption? Unbeknownst to me, when I watched that news segment at my parents' house, I would only need to wait a few years to find out firsthand. I attended Geneva College, majoring in student ministry. My roommate was a free Methodist from the Ohio Conference named Zach, and in our standard college boredom, we came up with the idea to start a podcast for our fellow students at Geneva. We knew nothing about podcasting. I googled how to do everything related to its production. We used a small microphone stick which we plugged into my laptop, and most of our guests were guys who lived on our dorm floor. Welcome to the P316 podcast. This is Josh Avery. And Zach Calhoun. We had the chance to interview someone from Westboro for two of our podcast episodes, and we prepared for both occasions. The first time, we invited one of our college professors to join us in our dorm room, and we let him run the debate for the most part. Through questions directed at a man named Fred Phelps Jr., our professor was able to prove that Westboro was essentially a cult. While Fred, of course, would not admit that, all of the answers seemed to clearly point to the fact that the church was, in fact, a cult, and we decidedly ruled that Professor Thomas had won that debate. Now, it went so well, and our pool of people to choose for our guests were so slim that my roommate and I decided to ask Westboro for a second interview. This time, however, things would be different. We were going to debate Shirley Phelps, which was the pastor's daughter, and we were going to debate her ourselves, and we wanted it to be a change from what we had seen in the news reports or other interviews in several different ways. The conversation with Shirley started out as expected as she yelled about random Bible verses and God's hate for anything that moves and breathes. But then we started interjecting our own questions, the kind that were of a more personal nature, questions that we hoped would reveal their humanity and peel back those layers of hate to expose a bit of who they truly were at the core. I asked Shirley a question about the opposition they received to their message. And it turns out I wasn't the first person to come up with the idea that their compound in Topeka should be wiped off the map. Someone else had thought of it first and actually attempted to do something about it. An unknown individual had set off an IED, an improvised explosive device, next to Shirley's home, inches from her newborn's crib. Forgive the audio quality here, it's coming through that stick microphone. They set off an IED. Did you know they did that? I, 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 heard, I heard about that. They sent that off at your house? What are or? the details of that That's situation? Right. Yeah, well, it was an accident for it to be here. They thought that here meant the parsonage to the church. 
church because it was the largest house on the block. They didn't oh. ever occur to the pinheads that it's the largest house on the block because we have so many children. Thankfully and miraculously, the baby was not injured in the explosion. As we brought up question after question like this one with Shirley, revealing more and more of her humanity, we discovered something amazing. The Westboro Baptist Church members, while still overwhelmingly and obviously wrong in their hateful message, were human, just like Zach and I. The members had believed in their message and antics for so long that they really actually believed that they were speaking for God when they said things like, God hates you and don't pray for the USA. Beyond that malicious message, we uncovered a raw, real, and human side of Westboro. And we began to find ourselves coming to an amazing conclusion. We loved Shirley and her family as people, regardless of our strong disagreements. We decided to tell her at the end of the interview. So I want to say, I want to say to you, you know, I don't know, I know Zach doesn't fully agree with what you believe in, and, and, and I don't fully agree with everything you guys stand for, but I do want you to know um, that, you know, we just love you guys um, as people. And I, I want everyone listening to know that, uh, that these are real people, that, that there's no reason to hate them just because they believe in what they're, what they're talking about. Clearly, your zeal for the scripture is undisputed and very real, and I do give you a lot of respect for that. And a lot of people have differing beliefs and everything, but yeah, yeah we really do respect you as people. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for talking to me. Yeah, no, thank, thank you, you thank you for coming on this podcast. All right, then. Well, hey, we'll, guys. hey, we'll talk to you. Day. Hey, yeah, you too. We'll talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. Bye, Shelley. If you couldn't hear it because of my accidentally talking over her several times, she actually told us to have a nice day. We hung up that phone call floored by Shirley's response to our statement of love. While she had been using a loud and authoritative voice during most of her rage-filled arguments, the gentle, almost surprised tone that she gave at the end of our interview left us speechless, fumbling for the right words. I was expecting a lot more shouting and a lot more anger. Yeah, and I, I really think she wasn't expecting us to say what we did at the end. Oh, she kind of quieted up and, and talked in a kind of more mild voice. I don't know how to say it, but um, I don't know. Two years later, in the fall of 2009, I heard about a new book being written by Craig Gross and Jason Harper, a few guys who had a serious impact in my life throughout my college years. The book was titled, Jesus Loves You, This I Know, and each chapter in the book was dedicated to a different people group who needs to see the love of Christ in the world. As with many book releases, the authors received money for book promotion. Now at times, this money is used by authors to travel around, sign autographs at bookstores like Barnes & Noble, you know, thereby inspiring more book sales. But in the case of Jesus Loves You, This I Know, Craig and Jason decided to do something far more interesting. They decided to personally visit in some way each of the groups identified within the book's chapters. So for example, one chapter was about the poor, so the two headed to America's poorest city, Detroit, Michigan, and gave away a few homes to those who needed them in the name of Christ. For the chapter about the prisoner, they visited America's largest prison and met with the inmates there following a chapel service. You get the idea. For every chapter and people group discussed within, Craig Gross and Jason Harper planned and then executed some form of personal outreach. The final chapter in the book was titled, Jesus Loves the Religious. By religious, they meant the kinds of people like the Pharisees, those who claimed to know all there was to know about God 
and yet still seem to live nothing like he would want them to live. You might be connecting the dots as to where this is heading. As Craig and Jason considered who they might visit to represent this specific chapter, one name immediately came to mind, the Westboro Baptist Church. Now, I don't know what came over me in that moment, but as soon as I saw their trip schedule posted online, I emailed Craig. I told him that I had knew all about Westboro and how I had debated them in the college over the phone. I asked him if I would be able to tag along with them on their visit to Topeka, and he responded within a few hours. I was more than welcome to come along. In other words, we were about to show up on the doorstep of the most hated church in America with one agenda. Love them as we love ourselves. No debating, no trying to prove our point. The purpose was simply love and love alone. I sought the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, a statement I had read countless times but never really considered the implications. In verses 44 and 45, he says that, I'm using the King James Version here, we are to love our enemies, do good to those who hate us, pray for those who persecute us, and bless those who curse us. While Westboro had never done anything to me personally, I wondered if it was true. Would love really be the best possible response to hate? Well, Sunday, August 30th finally arrived. It was the planned day that we were to show up at Westboro's church service. Our plan was to attend the service, then hang out afterwards and chat with anyone who would be willing. Arriving early, we found ourselves outside of an imposing church building in the middle of a suburban neighborhood. I think I was expecting the Westboro compound to be in the center of a desert somewhere with big walls where people drank the WBC Kool-Aid as they peered through the gate at Passerby. But I hadn't expected this infamous church to be in the middle of a bunch of homes. It seemed like the building had been dropped onto the street by mistake. But while there wasn't a large wall surrounding the church, there was a wooden fence that stretched down the entire block, boxing in not only the back of the church building itself, but the backyards of dozens of the homes of Westboro members, creating one giant backyard. An American flag flew on a flagpole upside down, a common sign of distress for the nation, which of course was the point that Westboro was trying to make. A church sign that read, God hates America, had been the subject of vandalism, black spray paint spelling out the words, God hates the Phelps, which had been hastily scrawled there. When we pulled up, there was no one in sight. Because of this, we figured we were the first people to show up that Sunday and we could reserve a pew in the front row once the doors were unlocked. Slowly, time moved forward, inching towards service time, and still no cars pulled up on the street. No individuals walking our way. Now, when there was only five minutes left until the service was scheduled to start, two men in suits and sunglasses emerged from the church building. Shirley stood behind them, silently smiling as they listed the church rules. Um, I've already been in communication with the law enforcement, so if anything happens, then they'll be here pretty quickly. But I don't anticipate there being anything. So, okay, so we'll just, no talking, no interrupting. That was Jason at the end there, explaining that we believe in civility and that we certainly weren't planning on doing anything crazy that would involve the need for police involvement. We were then ushered into the service, where we found to our surprise that all the members of Westboro were already seated, leaving only two pews in the back rows of the small sanctuary open for us. Later, we would learn that the entire congregation entered through the back door, traveling out the back doors of their homes through the community backyard to enter the church building. A man played the organ softly on stage right. Men were dressed in suits and the women in dresses with their heads covered by bonnets. Not one of them looked back at us, but the patriarch and pastor of the group, Fred Phelps Sr., scowled at us from the pulpit as he clutched his sermon notes. The service began with a classic hymn. Taking away 
then moved on to an hour-long sermon by Fred. There's more about the hatred of God than about the love of God in the Bible. You can't be a Bible preacher without preaching the hatred of God, the wrath of God. And that was it. Nothing more. Pastor Fred, who lived on the second floor of the church building, went upstairs to his bedroom after that and didn't show up for the rest of our trip. Shirley, who is, as you'll remember, Fred's daughter, stuck around. Craig and Jason gave her a copy of their book, Jesus Loves You, This I Know, to which she jokingly responded that she wouldn't read it, but... I will use this to hold down papers <laughs> After the conversation about the book, Shirley offered to show us around the entire Westboro property. We excitedly agreed to take the grand tour, which started in a room connected to the sanctuary that I like to call the Sign Factory. Even though the service had just ended moments before, there were already young men in the sign factory running professional-looking signs through lamination machines, getting them ready for the next protest. Currently in production was a sign that read, Obama is the Antichrist. Moving outside, the full extent of the community backyard became clear. A large in-ground pool next to a barbecue sat next to the church, ready for birthday parties and summer fun. Next to the pool was a simple basketball court with a boombox sitting under one of the hoops. Shirley asked us if we wanted to see a dance they'd been practicing to one of their so-called parody songs, and we said, sure, why not? And to this day, I'm still not sure where they came from, but in a matter of seconds, people came out of the woodwork, dancing in synchronized movements to God's Mad, their own version of I'm Bad by Michael Jackson. We rewrote the song. This is our version, but in the video. No, I thought this was Michael. Come on. Five, six, seven, eight. It was extremely strange and hilarious at the same time, and it became even better when we all dared Jason to go out and dance with them on the court, which turned into him doing the robot and surely laughing hysterically. When we passed the group's trampoline, Craig took off his shoes and just started jumping. Jason wanted to be next in line, only announcing once he was jumping, I'm a broken tibia, I'm doing this. Oh, That'd be a bad idea. The tour ended in Shirley's personal garden. Hey, no, nothing illegal in this garden, huh, Shirley? Let's make it sure we're not Some smoking. people think that okra is illegal. Okay. You make some good fried okra around here? Yeah. It's yeah. good. Oh, it is the best. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Is that what we're eating for lunch? Uh, I'll fix you some fried okra. We weren't able to stay for the fried okra. Jason and Craig had to get to the local newspaper office where they would be interviewed about the book and the visit. But once again, I felt the same feeling I had at Geneva on the phone with Shirley. After spending the afternoon with her and a few of her children, I felt more than ever that I could see the humanity of Westboro, that part of them that was easy to love. I considered the moment that we first arrived where big men had warned us outside the service to behave or they would call police. I contrasted that with the end of our time on the property where one of the members was actually inviting us to lunch. All we had done was spend a few hours showing common respect, love, dignity to these people, and their demeanor had changed entirely. That evening, we surprised Westboro by showing up to one of their protests in downtown Kansas City. American Idol was having a big show downtown that night, and it was the season that featured Adam Lambert, an outwardly gay singer. Homosexuality is one of the things that Westboro gets the angriest about, but they weren't only holding their anti-gay signs, they were holding other signs too. Ones with strange phrases like, you will eat your children, taken from the verse in Leviticus 26, and pray for more dead soldiers. 
While we had brought along our own signs, ones that said things like, Jesus loves the broken, and Jesus even loves Westboro, our purpose for being there wasn't to hold signs like they were. It was to spend even more time showing love in the midst of the hate. I spent my time talking to a woman named JL, yet another of Fred's grandchildren. She was my age and was managing to hold four signs at once. After some classic Westboro Baptist rhetoric, I asked her about her cousins who had decided to leave the church a few years beforehand. At Westboro, it's not just a matter of switching churches, as may have happened to you or someone you know in the past. If a member leaves the church in Topeka, they're excommunicated forever. In some cases, that member may be allowed to return if they're deemed truly repentant by the community. But for the most part, if someone leaves, that means they're never going to see their family ever again. I asked Jael if she missed her cousins. At first, she told me that she didn't because they were enemies of God and she wanted nothing to do with them. I explained to her that my brother had died of leukemia, and even if I wanted to, I literally couldn't talk to him anymore. It wasn't that way with her cousins and the people that she had lost. She actually could pick up the phone and call them. As our conversation continued, she began breaking down from that original strong stance, saying things like she didn't think she would want to talk to them. And the pain was evident in her eyes, revealing that there was more going on in her mind than she wanted to admit. As I flew home from Topeka that next day, I thought over the implications of everything that I'd seen and heard. I fully believed two things in that moment. Firstly, that the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 were true. Love really did triumph over hate. Secondly, I felt a deep conviction that if someone were willing to love the members of Westboro on an ongoing basis, as we had in the one day we were able to spend on their property, many of them would turn from their lives of hate forever. After my trip to Topeka, Matthew 5, 44-45 was etched into my top favorite Bible verses list. Unlike other verses on that list, which were simply there because I liked the content or the poetic sound of it, I felt like I had experienced and attempted a bit of what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5 with the Phelps family, and it had changed my life forever. In a sense though, let's be honest, while Westboro Baptist Church was full of hate and anger, none of that was ever once directed at me. Although I found it sickening, disturbing, and highly upsetting to know that they picketed the funerals within sight of grieving families, they had never protested at the funeral of someone I knew. So could I claim that I had truly mastered Matthew 5's command of loving my enemies? I would have liked to say so, but only time passing and a life-shattering event would be able to provide the right conditions for the ultimate test. It was December 2012, only a few days after a normal Christmas celebration with friends and family. Work had already weaved its way back into the lives of most Americans. The holiday passed, time ticking on as usual. I sleepily squinted into the morning light and noticed my wife standing there, saying something to me. Now this was not out of the ordinary. She went to work in Pennsylvania early every weekday over an hour from home, and she would often tell me she was leaving before she went out the door. So when I heard her say, I'm leaving, it didn't mean anything strange to me. It was only when she repeated it after I said goodbye that I realized something was different this time. She wasn't just going into work. She was wanting to leave the marriage for good. And as the following days unfolded, I found out that she had been involved with the guy from her job that she planned to continue a relationship with. 
I didn't really blame her. For some reason, I blamed him. Let's call him Roy. Roy was an extremely nice guy, or at least I had thought so in all of our interactions. I had seen him multiple times before. He'd even helped me to fix my car when it was broken down in the parking lot where they worked. As I spent those winter nights alone at my house and the days immediately following her announcement, I found myself wandering around without any clear direction. I drove to the mall and began walking around, only to realize I had no reason for being there, nor did I even want to be there. I called my friend from college, that same one who encouraged me to always live my life like a story, to talk about what was going on. As I arrived at home, still on the phone with Seth, I realized that I needed to take out my kitchen trash via the back door before taking off my shoes. As I descended the stairs to the back door, the water on my shoes from the melted snow caused me to slip, sending me sideways down the short staircase. I landed with a thud on my arm, feeling a dull pain immediately. Surprisingly, I had managed to keep holding the phone up to my ear during the call, and I told him I thought I had broken my arm. At first he thought I was kidding, but then he realized I wasn't, and we quickly hung up. I called my parents and stumbled into a chair in my living room until they could arrive. As time marched on, the pain continued to intensify until I could no longer even stand up on my own. I remember crying from the pain. Not only the physical pain of what ended up being diagnosed as a severe dislocation, but also the pain of wondering why God would allow me to face this injury now, in the midst of all the emotional pain I was already feeling. I had many people offering advice and thoughts during those days. Some even offered to go where Roy lived and beat him up and get revenge for the pain that he had caused me. Others picked me up from my house, bought me dinner, and watched TV shows with me on their couch for an evening. After almost a year of ups and downs, it was clear that Roy had won the battle and nothing would change the situation. We would receive a scheduled divorce at the Youngstown Courthouse. A few weeks before the court date was to arrive, I heard that Roy might show up. I wasn't sure what he was planning to do if he came or why he even felt it was necessary to be there in person. I only knew that I had a decision to make if he did show up, and it went back to Matthew 5. As I saw it, there were three options for how I could respond to Roy if he was there. First, I could try to fight him or throw insults at him, which I had to rule out immediately after I remembered that I hadn't been to a gym since fifth grade. Second, I could do what most would recommend. Don't be rude in any way, just simply ignore the guy and get through the process. And thirdly, I could do what Jesus said and love my enemy. Since love is an action verb, it didn't seem likely to me that he meant to ignore your enemies when he stated that we should love them. A thought came to mind that this option would require me to give until it hurt to the one who had hurt me the most. There was a huge, obvious gap between Shirley Phelps of the Westboro Baptist Church and Roy, the man who I felt was responsible for ruining my marriage. Shirley hadn't hurt me personally, while Roy seemed to have attacked the most important things in my life. And yet, neither of them was different from the other. They were both humans who sinned and made mistakes, and they were both humans who were more than one-dimensional creatures. Shirley was more than the hateful character depicted in the TV interviews, and Roy more than the person who had stolen parts of my life from me. Ultimately, neither of them were different from me. A human who needs to face his own sinful wretchedness so that I might fully accept the sacrifice of Christ and live my life accordingly. All these types of thoughts came through my head, but I still needed to make a decision. The easiest thing to do would be option two, to civilly get through the morning ignoring Roy and moving on with my life. I figured that route was probably the best bet. The official court date arrived and to my dismay, Roy was there, 
sheepishly sitting off to the side during the entire meeting with the judge. He was looking down at his phone most of the time, maybe checking a few sports scores or perhaps playing a difficult level of Candy Crush. I'll never know for certain. When it was all said and done, all three of us gathered up our personal items and headed towards the doors of the courthouse at the same time. On the way down, nothing was said, but as we exited the first set of double doors and she went on ahead, I turned back to Roy, who was walking alone. It was time to enact the plan. I have something for you, I told him, reaching into my pocket. Oh, really? What's that? He said, in a tone I wasn't quite sure how to interpret. Perhaps he truly was curious. Maybe he thought I was about to finally yell at him for everything that had happened. He certainly couldn't have been afraid of me trying to fight him, and he knew I wasn't a lunatic hiding a weapon because we'd already passed through security and metal detectors earlier in the day. I said, where we see pain and problems, I believe that God actually brings parties and restoration into those situations. I want you to know that I forgive you, and I want to give you this $25 gift card for Cold Stone Creamery ice cream. I didn't even know what I was doing. All I knew is that buying ice cream for a guy who had stolen my wife seemed like the kind of caper that Jesus would have thought was amusing. I guess Roy didn't know how to interpret what I was doing either, because he reached out his hand to shake mine. I told him we weren't on a business trip, and I gave him a hug. So there I was, standing in the courthouse, giving a hug to the guy who had seemingly destroyed my life after buying him ice cream. God had given me the strength to attempt to live out the Matthew 5 verse once again. And yet again, it was clear that the way of living that Jesus talked about really is the best possible way to live, even when it seems counterintuitive. There's an epilogue to this chapter of my life. I had the honor of getting remarried. Many of you have met my wife, Carissa, whether in person or here on FMC Radio in episode 6, where we discussed our top 10 most meaningful Bible passages together. In marrying Carissa, I feel like I was given a second chance at many areas of my life that seemed to be destroyed forever. The lyrics written to a song titled Dance Again seem to define what Carissa has done for me through the masterful plan of God. A few days before our wedding, I received a message on Facebook from none other than Zach Phelps, Shirley's son. He explained that he had decided to leave Westboro once and for all, and that ultimately he had come to the conclusion that love was stronger than hate, and he couldn't live the life of that church any longer. Now don't get me wrong, he wasn't implying that our visit in 2009 or my conversations with him had anything to do with his decision. My visit to Westboro changed me more than it did any of them because it taught me those initial lessons of Matthew 5, long before I would need to put them into practice in my personal life. After leaving, Zach had traveled back to a spot he had commonly protested at with his family, a street corner near a local park. This time he wasn't holding signs like, too late to pray, but instead he held a sign that read, 
forgive and forget. My name is Zach Phelps-Roper, and I'm a former member of Westboro. They don't know what kind of harm they're causing. Please forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's call them with kindness and show them what loving your neighbor's all about. Thank you. In the midst of my conversation with Zach, I told him about my upcoming wedding and how I would have been so excited to invite him if he wasn't living halfway across America. He was still living in Topeka at the time, and the wedding was in Hartville, Ohio. To my surprise, he told me that he would do his best to come if his friend could give him a ride. <laughs> Furthermore, he was banished from Westboro after leaving, so with little support and outside help, the only thing he had to wear to the wedding would be a t-shirt that said, Peace and Love on it. I didn't expect Zach to actually show up. After all, Topeka is 865 miles from the wedding, about a 13-hour drive. While he said he was excited and was planning to come, it was hard to imagine that he would truly be able to make the trip. On our wedding day, Chris and I walked around the outdoor property taking pictures before the ceremony. Where there were some family and the wedding party present, many of the guests had not yet arrived when a single car pulled into the parking lot. Out stepped Zach and his friend, both of whom were wearing Peace and Hope t-shirts. Zach showed me a few new signs that he had brought along, but these were much different from the ones that I'd seen at his old home in the sign factory. One sign read, Love never fails. Do It For The Story is a production of FMC Radio. Instrumental music today comes from Kia Engel. Today's episode was sponsored by the Monocrest Free Methodist Church in Manaka, Pennsylvania. They're currently looking for a paid part-time worship director to work up to 16 hours a week. If you're interested in applying or you want more information, please contact Colleen Carney at 724-513-9114 or see the show notes for more details. You are the main character in a story being written through your life by God. Live it well. Until next week, I'm Josh Avery.